0: Good morning church. We are Molly and Eric Schluter and so delighted to be worshiping with you in uh, church today. We're going to continue studying Hebrews, anchoring our hopes in Jesus with concrete confidence. Jesus is greater than our traditions and our family heritage of faith and is worthy of more glory. Jesus is greater than Moses and his greater glory strengthens our sense of uh, security and fuels our faith. Please join me in reading God's Word. Hebrews 3, 1-6 Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: Amen Good morning, everyone. I add my greetings to those you have already heard, and encourage you, if able, uh, keep your Bibles open. If you don't have your Bibles, we have Pew Bibles conveniently located on the pew rack in front of you. Grab it. If you don't like using paper uh, and you want to use your phone, that's okay too. No judgment from us. We just want your eyes and, more importantly, your hearts in the Word of God. Uh, This morning, as we continue to worship, we're going to be answering a simple question. How can Christians love unconditionally? in a way that is uncompromising to our faith. Post-Christian American culture is growing in opposition to anyone who lives with conviction. Less people are going to church, more people are disregarding faith in anything while there's increasing hostility to specific faith in Christ. Christians must have a concrete confidence as the current of our culture increases in tempting all of us to be carried downstream into the wind and seas of compromise. A few months ago, I went to get a haircut before a funeral. There was a sense of urgency because my hair looked shaggy and I didn't want to look shaggy while doing the funeral. So I went to the place that was the most convenient for me. I went into this barber shop I had never been in, and the sense of tension was very, very high. There was clear hostility between uh, one woman who was a barber holding scissors in her hand and another person who was there who was transitioning between being a man to a woman or a woman to a man. I could not tell. And I needed a haircut. I didn't have a whole lot of time for discernment. I felt the tension and I asked, how long's the wait? And they said with a little urgency, you can sit down now. All right, I'll sit down to get a haircut. As I did, the focus of the conversation came to me. Where are you from? How long have you been here? What do you think about COVID and precautions? Then they asked, what do you do for a living? I paused, I looked in the mirror at my barber, and I looked behind her in the mirror to the other barber. Both were very curious. Would I continue convenient conversation, get my hair cut quickly, and get out? Or would I come out as a pastor, a Christian, going to perform a funeral? Christianity is on the fringe of our culture. No longer are we in favor with the general population. Friction towards our faith is growing. And it's difficult for all Christians to stand for our faith in a way that is loving and truthful. It's easier to be quiet or to change a subject or To avoid answering questions, anything, but not have to speak both love and truth, truth and love. As a pastor, I get questions weekly that highlight this tension in all of our life. This week, two conversations around questions like this. Is there really a design for all of life, including my sexuality? both my preferences and practice? Does God really have a way and a truth for my life? Or can't I just live my way and my truth since it's my life? Don't our feelings lead us more than someone else's definition of facts? Or is it isn't my desire truth enough for me? In particular, can't my friend or family member who is sincere about their faith, even though they practice a faith other than Christianity, I mean, can't they still go to heaven? I mean, my coworker, he's a good guy. How can a loving God not have a relationship with a good guy? The tension is real, and all of us can identify with it. As I sat in the chair, my heart was pounding. Months earlier, I'd shared with a a group of city leaders sponsored by our our local government, and I shared, without apology, uh, the celebration I have of God's design for marriage and family. And I was met with very intense hostility. And now I'm sitting in a chair, answering questions from someone who's holding scissors. <laughs> All of us face attention. How do we love unconditionally in a way that is uncompromising to our faith? This was a question for us, and it's a question that the early church was asking and the author of Hebrews wrote for. The author, audience of Hebrews faced persecution. Persecution externally. Chapter 10, verse 24, 23 and 24 highlight the fact that they were being put in prison for what they believed. But they were also facing temptation internally. False teaching, encouraging people, just it's okay to be comfortable. I mean, Jesus is God, but he's not like God of gods. I mean, Jesus has authority, but he's not like Lord of lords and King of kings. I mean, the word of God, it's It's important, but it's not all authoritative for all of life and infallible in every single word appropriate for all of our life and practice. Or is it? You see, the problem is that too many of us, beginning with the early church, lean more on our tradition or our family heritage to find our confidence, and when we encounter the current of our culture, we are carried away. Into compromise. But the gospel of Jesus Christ invites us to reorient our hearts, refocus our faith on Jesus by considering him and his work and by acknowledging and celebrating that he gets greater glory than anything else in all of the world. The author of Hebrews is inviting you and inviting me to have steadfast hope, concrete confidence in a culture that has a very swift current, that we might learn to love in truth and share truth and love. Before we study the word of the Lord, will you go with me to the Lord of the word in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation. As your people, we submit our hearts before you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would not just inspire us, but truly transform us. Lord Jesus, Son of David, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we studied the end of chapter 2. and In that context, verse 10, Jesus is called the founder of our faith. He is the champion, the pioneer of what we believe. And we looked at it in the same way that David gives victory to all the Israelites over Goliath by defeating the champion of the Philistines. All of God's people experience victory. So also Christians who have Jesus as our champion, Jesus as our representative, experienced the sovereign grace of God, the substitution in our place. He died as our representative. We experience salvation to the point of we don't even need to fear death. And there's satisfaction for our sins. That his substitutionary death actually satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Therefore, we can have confidence and steadfast hope. Now, Bob preached from this pulpit last week a powerful sermon that captured the work of Christ in that way. Even with all the S's. He alliterated with lots of S's. I appreciate that. I, I alliterate as well. But for us, we need to dive in a little deeper. Because we need to remember that in chapter 3, Paul or the author starts comparing the greatness of Jesus to Moses. And he does that because the original audience was very, very Jewish in their understanding of Christianity. They had a temptation to say, wait a minute, how could Jesus be our champion? How could Jesus be the founder of our faith? We thought Moses was. Moses, in fact, is the author of the law of Moses in the Pentateuch, right? He's the one that wrote all the ref- many of the references that we've encountered in chapters 1 and 2. Moses was the one that, that went up Mount Sinai to, to meet with God face to face. Moses was the one that led God's people out of Egypt, Moses was a representative of a covenant relationship in the Mosaic Covenant. Moses was a vehicle for God's law, so much so that it's called the Mosaic Law. It bears his name. Moses was a person who the book of Numbers says met with God face-to-face in the Ten of Meaning, and then Exodus 33 describes him as a friend of God. That's Moses. He's the one in Exodus 34 that saw the glory of God pass before him. How could he not be the founder of our faith? The answer is that Moses always pointed beyond himself. Jesus claimed this in his life, and his ministry. John chapter 5, verse 46. And after his resurrection, he explained to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of what was written in Moses and the prophets, of which Moses was the standard for all the prophets, they all pointed to him. Luke 24, 27. Jesus is greater than Moses. And you look at me, you say, well, Mitchell, that sounds like a fine sermon for first century Christians that were tempted to glorify Moses in such a way. Do you really need a sermon from Hebrews 3 about Jesus being more glorious than Moses? Absolutely. All of you do. Some of you have friends and family uh, who are Jewish, and we can celebrate together the fullness of what it means to be Jewish, to worship Jesus alone as the Messiah, the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises. But more than that, we can identify with the temptation of the first century audience. Because Moses represented more than the litany of things that I just shared with you from the Old Testament. Moses represented the tradition of the law. Moses represented the family lineage and heritage that the Jews celebrated and shared together all of us have a temptation to find our confidence in our traditions, to put our confidence in our family heritage and not in faith in Christ alone. How many times do we hear people say, well, I'm a Christian because I went to confirmation. Now, we love confirmation, Alex. Confirmation is a great thing. But confirmation doesn't make people a Christian, does it? It does not, I got an amen in a Presbyterian service. Spirit's moving, right? No, going to church, getting baptized, these things do not make us Christians. They are reflections of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. If your confidence is in your tradition, then when the current of our culture comes, you will be carried away into compromise, or even more. What about familial heritage? How many times do we hear people say, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians, or my grandparents are Christians. I was raised Christian. That doesn't make us Christian. Billy Graham used to always say, if I lived in McDonald's, would that make me a hamburger? If I was in a garage, does that make me a car? If you spend all of your life with your family in church, does that make you a Christian? No. And if your confidence is in that, you will never, ever hold fast to your hope. You will never have concrete confidence. Because when the current of our culture comes, the traditions and the family heritage, it lets go. And our hearts toss downstream. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that in God's mercy, he came from heaven to earth. And he fulfilled the law of Moses so that he could die in our place for our sins, rise from the grave, and his grace could grab our hearts. So no matter how strong the current is, nothing carries us away. We are steadfast and hopeful in the concrete confidence we have in God's faithfulness. So how can we be a people with the early church that this letter is written to Celebrate Jesus alone as the foundation and the founder of our faith. To celebrate Jesus being greater than Moses, but more than that, Jesus being greater and deserving more glory, even of our traditions. Jesus being greater and deserving more glory, even of our family heritage. Jesus being greater and deserving more glory above anything else in all the world. The first thing the author tells us to do is to consider Jesus look at verse 1 and 2 therefore holy brothers you who share in a heavenly calling consider Jesus now the word to consider it means to ponder it means to meditate to have a single mind a single focus so we saturate our souls in that which we consider now many things in our world seem to be worthy of consideration but none of them offer the security that God's covenant does. It's as they say in Texas, big hat and no cattle, right? It looks good. It looks like it's worth our confidence, but it isn't. Only considering Jesus and his work will help us have the power we need to have steadfast hope and confidence. How do we do that? First, we secure our identity in Jesus. Look how the people are called, the Christians there, Therefore, holy brothers. You see, Jesus, by his grace and his work alone, gives us a secure identity as children of God. We are in the heavenly home and the love of our Father. So much so that the second part of this verse tells us how deep of our security is. is. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, the apostle, literally just means one who was sent. Jesus was the one sent by the Father. You know John 3, 16, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus was faithful in being sent, so much so that he's also the high priest of the relationship. By that, his life was the sacrifice that secures you in the love of the Father's house. We have an identity with intense security. You are God's child in the house of our Father, and nothing can change that. Consider Jesus And so much so, consider Jesus, the invitation is freeing no matter what you've done, where you come from, or how much you have failed, verse 2, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, that is the Father. Jesus was faithful. What was he faithful in? He was faithful to fulfill the entire law of Moses. Matthew 5, he says it. There's not one iota, not one tau, not one I that has not been dotted, not one T that has not been crossed. Jesus completed it all. He was faithful, and he was faithful to be obedient, and he was faithful to go give his life as a sacrifice. He was faithful to live the life we could never live, and he was faithful to die the death we deserve to die. And then, by the power of the Spirit, he resurrected from the grave, so that everyone who believes in him as a champion can live from the victory of God and not for the victory of God. We are free to have a new heart and a new spirit that is put within us and live as adopted children, sealed by the Spirit, in the home of our Heavenly Father, who loves us friends consider jesus if you want to really anchor your hope jesus is the one who gets greater glory and that's the second point verses three to six make it clear we hold fast to hope not just by considering jesus but living in acknowledgement and knowledge that jesus gets all the glory over everyone and everything else look all of us are tempted to ascribe glory to other things. In the New Testament, and in particular, but scripture in general, it's chock full of people who have this conflict of who or what's going to get greater glory. Consider John the Baptist. It was John chapter 3, verse 30. And the disciples of John the Baptist came to him and they said, hey, John, everybody's leaving. They're all going to Jesus to get baptized. And John had a temptation. Would he find his worth and his glory, his identity and how many people came to him, how successful his ministry was, or would he ascribe Jesus to have greater glory? Well, you remember what he said. He looked at his disciples and he said, he must become greater, I must become less. It's that tension, real life tension. And you say, well, I was never a prophet dressed as a, in camel hair who ate locusts and honey in the desert. I can't identify with John the Baptist. Okay, okay, let's get a little closer to home. Remember Mark 10, the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. He said, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus said, that's simple. Go sell everything you want. And then what happened to the man? He considered the glory of his status, the glory of his stuff, the glory of his position, far more significant than the glory of Jesus. And he didn't do it. It says he went away sad. Now, we might not be able to identify with John the Baptist, but surely in American culture we can identify with the rich ruler. Jesus gets greater glory. And that's what he unpacks. The author of Hebrews wants to bring this home because he wants God's people to be steadfast in our concrete confidence and hope in our culture. And look how he does it. Verses 3 to 4. First, Jesus gets greater glory because he is the builder of the house. Doesn't the builder of the house get more glory than those who live in it? Have you ever been to a house that's unbelievably well done? The architecture's phenomenal. It's this perfect combination of ancient and modern. It's really nice, but it's really accessible and inviting. Like you're in all of it, but you're also invited just to come in and enjoy it. Rarely do you look in and you go and you look at the people who live there and say, Man, y'all are awesome. Always you go, Wow, who designed this house? Who built this house? This thing is unbelievable. And in fact, if those people had it built and moved, and the next people that moved in, the people are going to ask the same question. You see, Moses was the builder of the house, uh, sorry. He was not the builder of the house. Uh, Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses just provided the material. This is exactly what is said in Galatians chapter 3, 22 to 24. It is, in fact, the law of Moses that was used to lead people to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whereby we can be saved by faith alone and justified and be made children of God. Verses 5 to 6 is like, not only is the builder of the house get more glory, but also Jesus, the son, gets more glory than the servant. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ was faithful over all God's house as a son. You see that? A son has far more honor and glory than a servant. Now, think about that in terms of traditions. Think about this house. Our house of worship is built by our traditions. And they're beautiful. We love them. They're great traditions. But our traditions pale in comparison to the glory of Jesus. Jesus gets greater glory. He's the one that's faithful over this house. None of us are going to worship stuff or structures If we truly know our Savior, think about it in another way. We're a 175-year-old church. Generations after generations after generations have worshipped here. That's phenomenal. But those are just servants who've built the house of God. Whose house is it? It's God's house. And love built this house. Jesus Christ built this house. His work is our foundation, his word is our authority, and his grace gives us everything we need. Jesus deserves greater glory. And if we had time, I would send you back to 1 Chronicles 17, 12-14. If you want to write that down and look later, it's unbelievable. How when God makes his covenant promises to David, he uses this exact language about house and son and faithfulness. And when the author of Hebrews is, 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 is uh, acknowledging that Jesus is greater than Moses because the house was built by Jesus, he's the faithful son, he is not only making a comparison between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant, but he is declaring that Jesus is king. He's the real king, and the covenant faithfulness of God goes deeper and deeper rooted than anyone in here can understand. God is faithful. And friends, Jesus gets greater glory because of it. He's the fullness of all of God's promises. He was faithful and offers us a foundation. So we can grow in loving our culture unconditionally by sharing truth and love in an uncompromising way by considering Jesus and having understanding that Jesus gets greater glory than anything else. But this all fuels a greater confidence. We hold fast in hope. You see the end of the verse? I mean, the end of chapter 6 is really the foundation of all of our application. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The author wants Christians to have confidence, concrete confidence, steadfast, immovable hope, no matter how swift the current's going. And how do we do this? Well, first, in the application of all we've studied, that relationship is far greater than religion. Religion is a system of rules and practices that have a place in worship. But they are not a place of confidence for salvation. Relationship is acknowledging that Jesus has kept every single thing that we couldn't. He's faithful, and He died to pay for our sins. And we can have faith in Him and enter into relationship with God as children. Are you a child of God, secure in His love? Do you identify primarily as a son or a daughter? of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or is your primary identity in what you do or where you're associated with or who you're associated with? We are part of, at the the, uh, first one at the top, it says we are a holy family, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Secondly, not just relationship greater than religion, but trusting a champion is greater than seeking security with compliance. If Jesus is truly our champion, the founder of our faith, then all of the victory that he has accomplished, all those blessings, they're ours by faith. Now you might say, Mitchell, that's that's an interesting dichotomy, to trust Jesus as a champion or to trust my own compliance for security. Let me ask you this. Here's how you can know where you are. Do you live from victory Or do you live for victory? Do you believe that your acts and your goodness can actually make God not mad at you for your sin? Or do you believe that the death of Jesus as your champion and substitute actually paid the penalty for your sin and satisfies the wrath of God against sin? Do you believe that? Do you live from a place of victory, not just with your sins, but in all of life, knowing that our king has conquered the grave, and that even if we die, it is gain. And so when we live, it is for Christ. You see how those questions diagnose where we are? Jesus is our champion, so that's more security than seeking to live with compliance. Finally, we're anchored in the word. We're tethered to God's covenant love by faith so that we do not drift. We hold fast and we hope. Now you may be wondering, Mitchell, what did you do when you were in the chair of that barber shop? I was sitting there, and a woman literally had scissors to my head. And I'm gonna be honest with you. Initially, I dodged the question. I was purely in a transactional functional mode. Sir, what do you do for a living? well, I work downtown. <laughs> it didn't last long for the, the person standing behind me saying, well, what do you do downtown? <laughs> and you know what? I considered Jesus. Literally. I considered what he had done for me, the way that he had loved. I considered the security I had as his child. I considered all that we've talked about today, and I thought you know what I think the glory of Jesus is more important than the glory of a good haircut right (laughs) so I told him I said I'm a pastor I'm actually getting this haircut because I'm on my way I've got to do a funeral later and I really appreciate y'all cutting my hair and that led to a great conversation about life death far more than haircuts and you know what I'm going to tell you this I hope I see that couple again, not for another haircut. But I sowed seeds of the gospel, and I hope that they come to know Christ personally. And I do know this. I don't know if I'll see them in heaven or not. I should probably go get a haircut again there, but I do know this. That when I came in that place, the tension was high. And when I left that place, there was joy, energy. It was a very positive experience for all three of us. And I just say that, but not to say, hey, look what I did, but to say this, like, I'm like all of us. It is tough to have concrete confidence when the current of our culture is so strong. It is easy to just wave the white flag and to be convenient. Just simple, avoid the questions, move on. But the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to be steadfast in our hope, to be concrete in our confidence to share love and truth and to share truth with love because that's how Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We ask Lord Jesus that you would help us to believe so that we can carry the fruit of your victory into this world and share your blessings with all those you've put in our lives, whether they're in our homes, where we're getting our haircuts, in our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods. Lord, would you stir the beauty of your glory in our hearts to such an extent that we are steadfast in our confidence and immovable in our hope. Your King Jesus, it's in your name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen.